We're at the 10 a.m. I had to work really hard to get the 8 a.m. They were, they were soldiers. They were here. It was cold. I don't know about you, but like this is proper Joburg winter. It is cutting and difficult. But the amazing thing is uh, that we get to gather together like this still. And so I want to encourage you. I say it often. If you haven't heard me preach before, I say it, uh, I say it all the time. The more response you give me, the better I preach, the better it is for everybody. And so we're even going to do a little exercise. I've got a clipboard ready for you. So don't worry, you hear about that now. But we are in this series called Hearts Apart. And it's a series looking at leadership and influence done right. Now, we aren't just saying, hey, this is a, a good way to do leadership. This is actually, we're looking at what it means to be godly in our leadership. And we're doing it through the lens of these two characters in the Old Testament, King David, King Saul. One gets blessed and one gets cursed and actually both mess it up. And yet this difference that kicks in every single time is what God can only see, and that's the state of their heart. And so that's where this hearts apart concept has come from. And we see it in their leadership, we see it in their influence, we see it in their character, and we see it in their ultimate end. And last week, Sai uh, did part two, really looking at this idea of us actively waiting, but at the same time being called either to go through a door of opportunity or a door of obedience. And so often our hearts lean towards opportunity and not obedience, and yet in the life of David, we see obedience time and time again. That doesn't mean he gets it right, because what we're going to look at today is actually how godly leadership responds in failure, in the midst of failing. And so I gave this message the title, Breaking Bad, because I do think that we have this bad in our heart that needs to be broken, and it can only be broken by God, His power, His Spirit um, in us. So let me pray, and then we'll jump straight in. Father God, Lord, this series is looking at human hearts. Lord, this is a, a subject that you are literally the creator of. You create our very own hearts. And so, Lord, when a human heart goes awry, you are the one who knows how to bring it back. Lord, I pray that we would see your heart today, that we would see it's a heart for us, that it's a heart that's calling us, that's drawing us in, drawing us near. No matter where our hearts position is right now. If we are far from you, I pray that you would bring us close. Lord, if we're in that, that moment where we're, we're on the edge, where it looks like everything is taking over, where our heart has just grown sad and hurt and angry and frustrated, I pray for that heart right now, that by your word, by your truth, by your spirit, it would be softened, that it would be brought back, that it would be brought into relationship with you again, knowing that the great love that your heart has for us, and I pray that you would be with us, be over my words, be over this next few moments, in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. So our question today has to do around failing, and uh, I don't think anyone in the room, I don't think anyone online is going to argue with me that we all fail. Now, failing sucks, but there's something worse than failing. It's the moment where your failure gets called out. It's the moment where your failure gets exposed. I mean, we all know the moment where you've royally messed it up and you beat yourself up, up about it. It's horrible. But it's not as bad as when it gets called out by someone else, when it gets put out in the public square and suddenly now everyone knows just how bad we messed up. I want to take a look at that moment, that moment where our failure can get called out, where our, we get put on show, where we're exposed. And I think for most of us, it is not a great experience. The connotations are pretty negative. And I think emotionally what it does in the human heart, because we have this aversion to that type of moment, we would far rather 
stick with the failure being ours and ours alone to know about than it being exposed. I think our emotions in those moments actually are so negative that we have this aversion to the experience. But as you see God working in the life of Saul and David, what you find is those moments are so important. And so we're gonna do a quick exercise. I told you I'm gonna make you do a little bit of work. I got a clipboard. And on my clipboard, I wanna write down a few emotions that we would experience in that, in that scene. In a moment where your failure is getting called out, what is going on in your heart? I'll start us off. I think we can all admit, when you get exposed like that, you're gonna have a feeling of shame. Anyone got something else and you can shout it out. Ooh, rejection, that's a good one. Shame, embarrassment, rejection. Fear. Yo, that's okay. I'm just going to, I wasn't, I was done, but I'm going to add it. I'm, we're done. One more, one more, we're done. The page is full. I think we get the picture. Shame, embarrassment, rejection, humiliation, fear. We're gonna come back to this uh, at the end. And I'm gonna remember to do that because I didn't do it at the ATM. So you guys get, you guys get the real deal. Um, I think we can all admit that that experience is gonna be something negative. We're gonna feel those things. We have all had that moment where we feel those things. But I wanna take you to a scene and it's actually not with Saul and David. But go with me, it's gonna make sense. But it's a scene actually in the Gospels. And so put yourself in the scene. You have been waiting days, you have been waiting weeks, the excitement has been mounting because you know He is coming. And so you will be going out, you'll be actually getting to hear that guy speak. The one that you've heard about, the one who has been teaching, not like anyone else teaches, the one who seems to have an authority that the leaders of the day didn't have, the one that everyone's clamoring over. And so you wake up on that day very early because you wanna get the front row seat. You wanna be that first one there. You wanna experience the whole thing front and center. And so you arrive, you get your seat, you're comfortable and he walks in and excitement goes through the roof. And as you do, everyone's getting excited and clamoring around trying to find their space to hear him, hear him teach. And he begins to teach. He opens up the Scriptures. He does what only he can do seemingly because no one else could in that way. And you're excited because what a day this is going to be. But little do you know, your day is about to get hijacked. It's about to get interrupted. And so there is now a crowd that enters, an interruption. There is a ruckus that enters into the temple. And suddenly you realize it's the Pharisees and the scribes, those who are in power, those who have status, and they're coming in to interrupt the scene, to interrupt the teaching. And along with them, they're dragging a woman by the hair. And they throw her down in front of you, but more importantly, they throw her down in front of him. See, because they were trying to trap him. And they, they explain that this woman has been caught in the very act of adultery. And as she has done that, by the law, she should be put to death. She should be stoned. What do you say? This is the scene in John chapter eight. It happens in the temple as Jesus is teaching there and everyone is ready for his teaching and gets interrupted. And the Pharisees bring this woman who's caught in adultery and they basically are trying to catch him out to say, hey, 
the law says we should kill this woman. What do you have to say about it? It's a moment I want us to, for a moment, imagine with that woman, where all of our shame and failure is now exposed and called out. And for her, it really was a matter of life and death. Her life was hanging in the balance because it was very clear what the law said. It was very clear what had happened. She's silent through the whole process. It wouldn't have been comfortable. And I think for us, when we have these moments where our failure gets called out, so often we go down this road of feeling all these things and we have this now aversion to it that we try to hide away from it. But what I, what I really believe God is gonna say to us through this message and His Word today is that these moments are so necessary if we're gonna understand how God works. That these moments actually have to happen. We shouldn't avert ourselves away from them. Actually, we should take a different approach to them. Because for God, it doesn't matter what happens in that moment. What happens afterwards is what matters. And so we're gonna take a look at Saul and David coming back to hearts apart. Two guys who messed up a heck of a lot and would get called out for it. But the focus that I wanna take us down into is their response to them being called out. Because when you see the different, when you see the hearts apart uh, nature of Saul and David, you see it in their response to being called out, their response to failure. So we'll look at the first big one, failure. I mentioned, we, I, I don't think anyone's gonna argue, we all fail. The Bible actually will talk about this failure in humanity as a nature within us, something we can't get away from, and it's known as a sin nature. Now, how do we define failure? Well, the world would define failure as simply a, a lack of success. The Bible takes it a step further because it actually gives it the label of sin. It is, it is humanity's greatest problem, it is sin. And if you look at the definition, sin, sin definitely means that it is to miss the mark. When there is a target and you miss it, you have now sinned. And that target gets set by a holy creator God. Now, some people will look at that and say, well, that doesn't make sense to me because that doesn't sound fair. Why him? Why does he get to define the boundaries? Why does he get to define what is right and wrong? Well, when you're holy, you're set apart. It means there's no imperfection in you. There's only perfection. There's no wrong in you. There's only right. You also are the creator and so you have control and power over your creation and therefore you get to draw out, its, as you drew, drew out its boundaries in creating it, you also get to draw out its boundaries in how it should work. When you create something, you also innately have the power to give its purpose, to define its boundaries. I think some people who struggle with that idea of God being the one who is able to do that have also forgotten that if not God, then who? Us? Have you taken a scroll through your social media lately? Have you taken a look at the news lately? Do you really wanna entrust that to us? Or do you believe actually something's gone wrong and something needs to change? We're gonna take a look at Saul's failure, his sin. And then we're gonna take a look at David's failure and his sin. Saul's failure and sin gets to its peak in 1 Samuel chapter 13. We've spoken about the fall of Saul, that he was disobedient and because of his disobedience, God actually will reject him as king over his nation, Israel, and actually withdraw his blessing from him. Now we find him in chapter 13, it's about two years into his reign, but going back to chapter 10, he actually gets two commands, two uh, instructions given to him by God through Samuel. 
and on both accounts he will fail. The two commands are this. Number one, go to a place called Gibeah. There is a Philistine garrison there, an enemy uh, encampment. I want you to attack it because I will give them into your hands. Number one. Number two, after that, then go to Gilgal and you will wait there for Samuel because he will come and offer sacrifices for all the people as they are gathered. And he, at the end of his life, will have his final address. Two instructions, he messes them both up. This is what it says. It says, and when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah. Notice where they are. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. This is important. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. Saul has a bunch of failures right through this chapter. The very first one is he picks and chooses from God's commands. Notice the location, notice where he was and notice where his son Jonathan was. Notice what he does with his more men and what Jonathan, his son does doing what God commanded with less. It continues. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land saying, let the Hebrews hear. And all, the, all Israel heard it and said, Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. He doesn't just get his picking and choosing wrong. He now also has a second failure where he blows his trumpet and he steals the glory. He was not the one that attacked the Philistines. He was not the one that brought the victory. It was his son. It was his son, Jonathan, who led those men. And so who does he steal the glory from? And many would say maybe it would be pretty obvious that it was Jonathan. But even more so, if you take it right back to God's original command, the one who actually said, hey, I will bring victory through this, he ultimately was stealing victory from God himself. He blows the trumpet. The people say Saul has defeated when that was not the case. Godly leaders are always gonna be the ones who give praise, who give credit and give honor where it is due. And so they will do it for those who are under them. He should have done it for Jonathan. But most importantly, they understand that all glory should go to God who brings ultimate victory. Saul then does head over to Gilgal. At this time now the Philistines are licking their wounds but they're mustering their forces because they want revenge. And so they're coming out strong. But Israel is scared. And so they are trembling in fear and they're getting very desperate. And it's a moment where they needed great leadership. They needed godly leadership, but they didn't get it. It says this in verse seven. Saul was still at Gilgal and all the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. Third failure of Saul, and this is his big one, making this unlawful sacrifice. He failed in that he forgot his role. He actually was in the midst of an identity crisis and a purpose crisis because he was called to be king. He was not called to be a priest. Kings are called to lead, to direct, to protect. Priests are called to offer sacrifices. But he jumps the gun in that fear, in that desperation, in the people are starting to scatter because they're just scared. In the moment they needed a leader to gather and direct them, what does he do? Does the first thing he thinks he can. He goes against the command. 
He doesn't wait for Samuel the priest. He steps into that role himself, offers an unlawful sacrifice. And because of that disobedience, we will actually see his rejection. Godly leaders are always gonna know their role. They're always gonna know what they're called to do. And they will innately know the moment where they're called to get stuck in and get involved, put their hand to the plow. But they also will know the moment where they step back and let someone else do it because that's what they've been called to do. Let's turn our attention to David. David's sin and failure comes much later as he was now reigning in second, the book of 2 Samuel. Now, we said this the whole series. We don't want anyone to get, it, get misled and believe that somehow David was this perfect specimen, that he was upright, that he got things right all the time. He didn't. The truth is he messed up a lot and badly. That actually his sin was deplorable. Easy, no easy way to put that. It was terrible. And yet we see a different response. We see a different heart. And God's the one always looking at it. He failed in so many different ways. He failed in other battles. He actually would fail in his parenting. His children were a mess. But I think, well, I'll take you to, to Samuel uh, 11. His greatest and most famous uh, moral sin. His, most, his biggest failure while he was reigning. It, it goes like this in chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. David will also fail. And the very first failure is that he would have idle hands and it would actually lead him to sinning hands. Notice that it says, in the time that the kings would go out to battle, where is David? at home, chilling, idling. He's not where he's meant to be. He sends out his general and army to go do his bidding and chills in the palace. And so often the idleness of our heart can lead us down a road of sin. Sai touched on it last week when he spoke about the door of opportunity versus the door of obedience. I often hear people say, you know, God's really working. Doors are just opening, there's opportunities coming. And my caution is always, hey, an easy road doesn't necessarily mean an obedient one. Because the truth is, when it comes to the door of obedience versus the door of opportunity, understand the door to sin is wide open. There is great opportunity to sin. And so often it catches us in these moments where we are idling, where we are not where we're supposed to be, where we're not doing what God has called us to do in the space that He's called us to do it. It carries on. Verse two, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from uh, the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman and one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Failure number two, lust of the eyes. He sees this woman bathing I had a youth pastor who used to put it this way. You look once, it's reflex. You look twice, it's sin. He takes it a step further. It's not just looking. He actually begins to act on it. It continues in verse four. So David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. Failure number three, 
he goes down a road of adultery and deceit. You don't just look, you don't just see, you now inquire. And when you find out that Bathsheba is a married woman, you decide to act on it, take it a step further. You actually send out uh, messengers to bring her. And we're getting into very dodgy territory. Like we're actually getting into territory where you are now have a man who is using his wealth and his power and his status in order to please his sexual desire. Like we're getting into like Harvey Weinstein territory here. And I, I, I just want to say this as well. I've heard preachers done terribly in the way that it throws some shade at Bathsheba. Can I tell you, it makes it very clear she was doing what she was supposed to do by the law. She was cleansing herself from her uncleanness. So actually what she was doing, she was not in any wrong at this stage. There was only one in the wrong because there was only one who sent messengers to get her. And there actually is a quite a strong case that she probably came unwittingly. It gets worse. He doesn't just commit the act, he now has to cover it up. And so Uriah, her husband, he tries to get him drunk because he says, well, I've got her pregnant now. Maybe if I get him drunk and she, he's, they sleep together, they'll just assume the child is his. It doesn't work. And so he has to up it again. Verse 14 says, In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Failure number four, it's literally conspiracy and murder. He sends the letter by the guy's own hand. And Uriah will die on the front lines. And it will be what was ordered by David, what was plotted by David, what was planned by David in his trying to cover up his sin. It turns back to Bathsheba in verse 27 at the end of the story when it says, And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Both of them will fall, David and Saul, into deep failure deplorable acts of sin, breaking the commands of God. And yet we see two very different endings. So how is it that this can go so different, that it can go in two different ways? Because the truth is probably both of them very clearly were worthy of God's rejection. We're worthy of God's punishment. We're worthy of Him actually going a different way. But I, what I wanna see in the difference and what I really wanna highlight to us is that at a heart level, both externally and internally, the response when they get called out is very different. And that's what matters. If God is the one who looks at the heart and knows it intimately, He's gonna care about that moment. He knows we will sin. He knows we will fail. He knows we will do all these things because our hearts have been turned against Him. But the important moment is when we get called out on it, when it gets exposed, does our heart turn back to Him or does it turn away? And that's what's important. Let's take a look at their responses. Both of them will have moments where they get called out, where they get exposed and their responses are hearts of heart. Saul gets called out in verse 11 of chapter 13. The very next verse says, Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Mechmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. 
And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept uh, the command of your, the Lord your God with which he commanded you. David would also get called out. He would get called out in a different way by, by the prophet Nathan. And he would tell him this parable straight. And it was words from God to call out David. And the parable was about a rich man and a poor man. And they get visited by a traveler. And the rich man would actually take the only lamb of the flock of the poor man to offer to the traveler as food. And he tells the story to David and basically says, here's the story, what is your take on it? Verse 5 in 2 Samuel 12 says, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. You're the rich man. You're the one who had sinned. You're the one who had stolen. You're the one who tried to cover up. You're the one who was in the wrong. He gets called out. But I want to take a look at Saul's response and David's response because they're very, very different. And this is the true difference. It's why I, I was reminded of God's words in chapter 15. God says this in verse 11 of chapter 15. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned, his, uh, turned, he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. See, when it came to Saul, when he sinned, he would turn his back on following God. When it came to David, as he had sinned and was called out, he would actually turn his back on that sin and turn to God and follow him. It was a very different heart position. It was a very different heart response. And it's based on that response that God will work. There's two big differences I see here. First one is this, David worshiped God, Saul worshiped people. We see it so often. Human eyes can wonder, Bathsheba, David, it's very clear that our eyes can wonder. But the, true, the question is, when our eyes wonder and it leads us to sin, can it be redirected back to God? For Saul, that was never the case. It actually was the thing that plagued him his whole life. His eyes would focus on the wrong things and they were never, to, never able to redirect and focus on God. He was always focusing on people. He was always focusing on power. He was always focusing on circumstance, on opposition, on enemies. He was never focused on God. It's why he just said in, in chapter 13, I saw the people were scattering. His focus was the people. It happens again in chapter 15 where he yet again fails, doesn't follow God's command. And his words to Samuel in that moment are, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Later on in 1 Samuel, David begins to grow in his renown as a warrior in the army and begins to rack up victories in battle. And a song would be sung about David and it went like this. In 1 Samuel 18, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry and the saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And this is where it's so important to see Saul's heart, to see Saul's problem with his eyes. And, I, and Saul eyed David from that day on. 
His eyes were always on everything else and he had lost sight of God. He actually began to focus as God had given him uh, power and status and position and purpose. He began to focus only on that and forget that this stuff actually was to be in his hand to bring glory back to God. That actually it was to draw his eyes back to God. And yet so often he was watching people, he was wary of enemies, he was watching circumstance and yet he would not turn his eye back to God. The difference is so stark because even David throughout his life, as many times as he would mess up, he was able to keep his eye going back to God. Even in the moments where he had sinned, he would come to his senses and he would turn back. He wouldn't be crushed by the weight of the blessings God had given him. And he also wouldn't be, wouldn't be crushed by the removal of those blessings when God was disciplining him. David actually began to seek the giver of the gifts instead of the gifts themselves. Saul was always after the gifts and he had forgotten the giver. And it's because of this reason, David remains blessed, whereas Saul gets rejected and that blessing gets taken away. Second big difference between these guys is that we see David repent and we see Saul blame. When confronted by Samuel, look at Saul's words. He actually immediately turns it back on Samuel and he says, actually, you did not come within the days appointed. Samuel obviously was supposed to come on a certain day, didn't. And that led him into this desperation. And so he puts it on Samuel and says, well, it's your fault. You should have been here. I had to do your job for you. He even begins to blame the enemies for rushing him when he says, hey, basically the, the Philistines are coming down. We haven't sought the favor of the Lord yet. And so they are rushing us. So we had to do something. He plays the blame game. And we can look at it and forget that actually so often that's us. I know this so often can be me. You get called out. Even when you're in the space where you know you have done it wrong, you know you have royally messed up, you're gonna take, take it on the chin. But somehow it's gonna feel better if also someone else has some blaming this. And so let's just point it out, because at least it's not just me. We can play the game, blame game so easy. Saul did that. But look at David's reply to Nathan. After all of his deceit and trying to cover up and after he finally comes to his senses and gets called out in this way by the prophet Nathan through his word from God to him. His reply is this, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Full stop. No excuse, no blaming, nothing else. It's me. I did it. Very next line. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Saul was very quick to admit his wrong. I've sinned, I've gone against the command of the Lord, but, and, so. There was always words after it. For David, that wasn't the case. For David, his heart actually got to the place where he was in worshipful repentance. And it's in that place, that response, where God can work. He'll actually respond further and we get a more insight into where his heart was at this time as he wrote Psalm 51 coming out of the, uh, after being called out by Nathan. 
I wanna highlight a few of the verses that he wrote in Psalm 51 about this. Verse one says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. For I know my, uh, this is verse three, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Verse 11, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Maybe you're sitting here this morning, maybe you're watching online and you're taking this all in, but you're struggling and the struggle is this, that you somehow can't reconcile the rebellion and the uh, deplorable acts of this guy coupled with this kind of a heart, this repentant heart. How do those two things play in the same space? God's word actually will say that of, and it will speak of David as a man after God's own heart. How on earth can he be a man after God's own heart when all of this was true and happened? The simple answer is that in his moments of failure and sin, he wasn't that guy. But the moment where we get called out and we respond will reveal where our heart is. Because in that moment, in his response, he was a man after God's own heart. Because in his moment where he was turned away from God, where his heart was against the things of God, where he would disobey and displease God, being called out, he would turn back. And what we see in David's journey back is, one of repent, is a journey of repentance. It's a journey of restoration. It's a journey of renewal. renewal. It's actually a story of a uh, rebellious heart colliding with a renewing and restoring God leading to a repentant heart. It's the God of the universe who is gracious and loving and merciful, who actually meets us in the midst of our failure and says, hey, there's a different way. If you don't think that that's what God is like, and I know there are so many that struggle with that idea of God, how can you let Him get away with that type of stuff? How do you get away with that kind of failure? How do you get the, the damage He caused, the families He destroyed, the lives He hurt, how do you give that guy a way out? I wanna take you back to John chapter eight and give you again a picture of what God is like and why it matters to me and you because we deal with the failure in ourselves. It says this in John chapter eight, after the woman is brought and she is thrown into the dirt in front of him. And these Pharisees and scribes are trying to catch him out. And they say, hey, the law says we should do this. What say you? This is what Jesus does. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. I know the biggest question in this chapter is what the heck did Jesus write? I don't think what he wrote was important, but the act is important. I could do a whole preach on it. But they're asking his opinion on the law, basically, saying the law says we should do this. What do you say? Trying to catch him out, hoping that he'll go against the law. And he bends down to write in the sand. And what we miss is that this was on a Sabbath day. And on a Sabbath, a Jewish man is not allowed to write. But he is not only allowed to write on something that doesn't leave a lasting mark. And so Jesus bends down and he writes in the dirt. Basically saying, hey, you're asking about the law. I know the law. And they keep asking him, and this is what happens. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is out sin 
among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. I don't want us to miss in the midst of our heart failure and our heart response, the heart of Jesus to us. Because the truth is, and we have to be honest with ourselves, if we have to put ourselves in the story, where do our hearts normally fall? Are we the ones who are gonna, at a heart level, join the crowd to pick up the stone to throw at someone else's failure? Do we look at David and his failure and in our judgment decide we're gonna pick up a stone? Or have we understood and experienced the grace of God that actually leads people down a road of renewal to the point where what they did didn't matter, but what they did after it did? I think God's really wanting to highlight this, that our encouragement is to walk a road of grace and not condemnation. I think that should be our response. And the question and the challenge is there. Will we take grace or will we take condemnation? Are we more likely to be the ones to grab a stone or are we more likely to be the ones to understand what it's like to sit in the dirt? Because when you receive that kind of grace, you're able to extend that grace to others. It's why Jesus actually will say in Luke chapter 7, To those who have been forgiven much, they will love much. The band's gonna join me on stage and this is where I wanna end. Can we for a moment find ourselves in the dirt again? Because in that moment, you might see Jesus as this loving teacher who who it doesn't condemn, actually extends grace to this woman, but realize he is still the judge of the entire world. 2 Timothy 4 says that Jesus is the one who will judge the entire creation, all the living, all the dead. And so Jesus sits as the only one capable of picking up that stone and throwing it at her because he has no sin, because he is perfect and he is the only one who can judge. And he would be the one who who doesn't just judge this woman, but also was the judge over Saul and saw his heart and saw his, uh, his unrepentance and would actually reject Saul. He is the one who also would judge David for all that he had done and seeing his response says, actually, you know what? We're gonna walk a road of repentance, renewal and restoration. He's the judge over all creation. It's why when he says, hey, neither do I condemn you, We sometimes can cheapen it, say, well, if he's the judge, he's just able to pardon. He's just able to excuse. But what we might miss in the beauty of the gospel of the good news of Jesus is that he doesn't just say, hey, I don't condemn you, so go now. He actually says, I will be the one that will be condemned for you. That actually I'll be the one to take on that debt to pay it so that you are free and can go and sin no more. You might be saying, Dunks, why does grace matter so much to godly leadership and influence? It matters because that is how God leads and influences us. It's a grace that we can receive. And if we don't receive it, we could never extend it. 
we are always going to be the people who pick up stones. I think every single one of us need to come back to the dirt. Realising the moment we have failed. Remembering that, yes, we can feel all these things in that moment. That it's not going to be comfortable. And yet it's the means for our salvation. And yet we have to have that moment because it's our response that will get judged. Because it's the response that will determine whether we get judgment or we get grace, mercy and love. For David, his response was repentance. His response was actually, I have done this thing. I have failed. There is nothing I can do to save myself. And so would you save me? It's in that place that God will meet us. He'll look at us and say, neither do I condemn you. Why don't you stand with me? Today's response to this message can go only really one of two ways and it's for every single one of us. Do you need to receive grace or do you need to extend grace? It will be one or the other, maybe both. But it's for every single one of us because God's revealing again the truth of His grace and His mercy and His love to us. And ultimately, it's something that can get extended to others through us. And so right now, if you're in that space where you've never received the grace of Jesus, can I tell you, He's got your number today. You can receive that now. You can have the moment where Jesus will look at you and say, neither do I condemn you, now go and sin no more. And if you're in the space where maybe there is a person that God's gonna actually put on your heart right now because they need some grace extended to them by you, as difficult as that might be, when it is fueled by our in the dirt moment, it's so much easier because we realize what we were saved from. And maybe someone needs to get that grace extended to them. And how beautiful it could be that it comes through us. What a privilege it is that we get to actually extend that to someone else. Father God, as we ready ourselves right now just to worship, to reflect, as we ready ourselves to take communion together, the ultimate receiving of your grace, the ultimate extending of your grace to us as a community. Lord, would you meet us again at a heart level? Would you reveal in our heart what you wanna say to us, what you would have us do? Lord, if we need grace, would we receive it? Lord, if we need to extend grace, would you remind us of the grace that we first received from you so that we can extend it to others? Father God, I'm so struck again that you care so deeply for the human heart. You made it. You know where it goes wrong and you know how how to ultimately bring it back into relationship with you. It's my prayer that you would do that hundreds and hundreds of times today. Help us reflect on this truth and live it out tomorrow. As we sing now, I'd encourage you, reflect on this. Do some business with God at a heart level. Get yourself ready because we're going to have communion. Communion is something that is for people who have received the grace of Jesus. And it's a moment where we get to celebrate that we received that grace and we now get to extend it with others. That's why actually you get told in Scripture, hey, if you've got problems with someone else, problems with a brother or sister, sort that out, then come take communion. Because it matters. Why don't we sing, prepare our hearts, and then we'll take communion together.